No job is amazing 100% of the time. And actually, a little bit of emotional distance from our work can be really healthy. We don't want to identify too strongly with what we do. I think it's more than enough to do work that you feel like is meaningful and that pays you reasonably well and that you enjoy doing. This is not your average business podcast because here we are going to discuss how you hit your goals without losing yourself, your values, or your relationships along the way. We believe in the whole person versus the long-term hustle approach and demonstrating to our children what living a life full of purpose is truly about. We're here for the woman who is an aspiring entrepreneur, developing her personal brand, and staying open to the opportunities that come before her. We're here for the woman yearning to find businesses that align with her, her core being, so she can feel in alignment with her life. Come on this journey with us as we navigate this very full season and pursue a life we love. Are you feeling stuck? Are you searching for a greater purpose? Are you craving connection? Perfect. You are in the right place and we're excited to get you one step further than you are today. Hello, everyone. This is Abby. And today I'm interviewing my cousin, Sarah Green Carmichael. So Sarah has experience being on both sides of the mic from her work at Harvard Business Review. She worked there for nearly 12 years and hosted the HBR podcast, as well as the Women at Work podcast. So Sarah has interviewed people like Jane Goodall. She's interviewed Chelsea Clinton. She's interviewed Clay Christensen, who is one of my favorite authors and also allegedly the only business book that's on Steve Jobs' nightstand. She has dabbled in other work along the way, which we'll definitely get into, and now works for Bloomberg Opinion, where she writes columns on workplace issues. So Sarah, I'm so looking forward to having you share your wisdom, but let's first have you introduce yourself to our community. Sure. Well, thank you for having me, first of all, and thank you for that lovely introduction. As you mentioned, I am currently at uh, Bloomberg Opinion, where I'm an editor and a columnist, although right now I'm on maternity leave with my first baby. So I've been on a little bit of a, a break from doing that. And it's, it's really nice to actually take a break from my break to talk to you. So right out of college, I did a bunch of sort of different jobs. I was a research assistant for a columnist. I was freelance writing. I was sports columnizing. I basically just needed to get into a role that had more of a ladder and also had health insurance. So that's actually what spurred me to initially join Harvard Business Review. And then at the time, I was almost at the bottom of the masthead there. And I didn't actually intend to stay very long. My goal was to try to stay for five years. Well, I ended up being there for almost 12 years. So that worked out. And by the time I left, I was an executive editor there, which is almost at the top of the masthead. So it was a really wonderful time of growth and learning for me. But, you know, all things in the end, even good things must come to an end. And I was sort of ready to move on and try something else. I had a brief stint as managing editor of ideas at Barron's. And then after about seven months there, I switched to join Bloomberg Opinion, where I've been now for two, three years. Time has flown. So I've been <laughs> editing columns on politics, COVID, all kinds of topics. But when I write, I'm mostly writing about management, leadership, career, workplace stuff, gender at work, stuff like that. So it's been great. And I'm glad that it has led me to be here chatting with you. Oh, you've done so many different things. And the experience that you bring to the table today, we're definitely going to get into a lot more of those. And I know that in these roles, Sarah, you did a lot of research on gender as it relates to the workplace specifically. So I would love it if you shared some of your discoveries as you started digging into these topics. 
Yeah, that's a topic I've been interested in my entire life, starting with I read Betty Friedan for the first time when I was like 11 years old, (laughs) you know, it was like kind of an early start. But at HBR, especially a lot of the articles I edited were on this topic. And it's a passion of mine. So I'm especially interested in research on like how women make career decisions, especially when we're in committed relationships. I think a lot of the time, for example, women are presented as opting out of the workplace when research actually shows that women who exercise that quote unquote option have sort of run out of other options. They're not getting the support they need from their managers or their spouses. So I think that has influenced a lot of the way I think about sort of choice. Choices are always or often constrained. We live in the real world. We have constraints. So that's sort of something I've been interested in. I've been really interested in how men and women react differently to jobs that are time greedy. So those are professions where you feel like you have to be always on. Men and women often have different coping strategies to those jobs. And also just sort of psychological stuff. Like, do you think of yourself as a breadwinner? And how does that shape how you approach your work or how you think about your spouse's work? So there's just tons of fascinating papers on topics like that. And I never really tire of of looking into it. Oh, that's so interesting. Can you go into some of the the discoveries specifically on that time piece? Because that is one that I know I'm very interested in, and I bet a lot of our listeners would be interested in as well. Yes. So when men are in very time greedy jobs, so the typical examples are things like consulting or medicine or the law, you know, but really it could be any organization where you are expected to be always checking email or putting in long days at the office. Men tend to under explain when they need to be somewhere else. So again, this is like, I'm generalizing. Right, right, right. We're going to be maybe a little bit different, but on the whole, men tend to do things like just leave the office without providing an explanation. They don't ask for permission to say, leave half an hour early on a Tuesday. They just do. (laughs) Whereas women tend to like go to their manager and formally ask, and is it okay if I leave an hour early this day? Or, you know, that kind of thing. We tend to over explain or men for example, whose jobs require a lot of travel, often will quietly cultivate clients who are closer to their home. So they don't have to travel quite so much. So they just call a little bit of that time back. They don't ask anyone, they just do it. Whereas women tend to sort of formally go in and say, you know, I really need to cut back to an 80% schedule or something like that. So women do tend to be more upfront and honest, which are good qualities, but they often are qualities that are held against women in this context where FaceTime is so valued. That is so interesting because Colin and I worked for the same company for over a decade. And I can even just see it. We had different roles and the parent company was the same, but we had different departments that we were in, but we were both in sales. And even just between him and I, I could see where the asking for permission, the over-explaining, I did that. I did all of that where Colin would be like, no, I'm I'm just going to start to work on Madison and Milwaukee, where I had to ask after seven years to have my territory be brought down into a smaller territory. So, oh, just so interesting on that piece of it. Well, and I think it's important to just for me to add there that it's not just that women just do this on their own. It's expected of us is the other piece of it. 
So it's much harder for women to decline to work on various projects. Women are under more scrutiny at work. So it's not like we're irrationally doing something that doesn't make sense. So true. So Sarah, you also aren't afraid to talk about the risks that you've taken and the places that maybe you made a decision that didn't work out so well. And I appreciate that because we all make mistakes. We're human beings. But learning from those mistakes is the key in all of this. And in episode two of this podcast, we go into all of the behind the scenes of the mistakes that we personally have made in business and just what we've learned from that. So could you share about your stint at Barron's? I know you mentioned that right away at the beginning and what you ultimately learned from this experience. Yes, I love that episode of your podcast. It's one of my favorites so far. So it felt like a huge, huge change to try to leave Harvard Business Review after 12 years. And it felt like I was taking a massive risk in doing that. In reality, that was probably a little bit overpronounced in my mind. I remember that's very much how it felt at the time. I had been so happy and successful there. I loved the people I was working with, but I knew that something needed to change. Now, obviously, my expectation was not to only be at Barron's for a few months, which is how long I ended up staying. But despite all the thought that I had put into it and all my apprehension about leaving HBR, things changed shortly after I had been hired. The manager who had hired me left not long after I arrived. My job changed and suddenly the role didn't quite feel like what I'd signed up for. And you know, things just sort of weren't working out as I had hoped. So I think that one of the lessons I took from that is that no matter how much you obsess over a decision beforehand, it might not work out the way you hope. And in some ways it was freeing to realize that I couldn't control everything by just obsessing or worrying over it. It would be a lot of responsibility if I could actually control everything in my life. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. um, it was sort of liberating to be like, you know what, this is sort of not working out and it's really okay. And then of course the other the big takeaway was that, you know, if you make a big decision and it doesn't work out, you can revisit it. You're not stuck with it forever. So that was sort of the second thing I realized was pretty quickly. I realized, okay, I made this big change. It's time to make another big change and find a new job because I just need to, to move on. And then I think that the difference was then I sort of decided I wasn't going to negotiate with myself before negotiating with another party. So I think going into Barron's, I had assumed that if I wanted to stay in Boston, where I'm based, that my options would be limited since the media industry is so heavily concentrated in New York. And so given that Barron's was willing to let me stay in Boston, I thought, oh, this is probably my only chance. And I think that was sort of selling myself a little bit short. Most organizations, I think, or many other ones would have been okay with me staying in Boston. And now I work for Bloomberg out of their Boston bureau. Uh, So I think. Also, especially after the pandemic, my hope is that more jobs will be okay with flexibility. But that's something that I I wish that I hadn't negotiated with myself on that before I, I went out and asked some people. There were so many good points in that answer. And what I really liked is that you shared negotiating with yourself because sometimes we can, we get into analysis paralysis where we have too many decisions to make and then we're fighting against our own intuition and what we actually think in order to let the world make that decision for us. So I'm just glad you brought that part up. And for those of you listening, episode two, I mentioned that earlier, but Sarah was the one who gave me that big push to actually leave my corporate job. So she has so many good one-liners. One of them was, I didn't want the reason I stayed be because I was too scared. And I'm probably saying that not exactly verbatim, Sarah, but you saying that in one of the podcast interviews I listened to, I was like, 
yes, like this is what I want more women to understand is that we can be so scared in the decision that we made or we made this decision. So now we feel like we have to be stuck in it. When in reality, life is so much more fluid. It is so much more fluid and we don't have to stay stuck in a decision, even if it took us months or years to make. Yeah, I am really glad you mentioned that. I remember feeling very scared to leave HBR. It had become such a part of my identity and I was scared at who I might be without Harvard as, you know, on my business card. <laughs> but I am really glad I took that leap because I'm in a great place now. Yeah, I'm really happy. Bloomberg has been great. So it wasn't a straight line to get here, but I, I'm really glad I didn't stay stuck just because I was scared. Mm, so good. So switching gears a little bit, you mentioned this right away at the beginning, but you are currently on maternity leave with your baby, Georgia. And we're so excited to have another baby in the family, first of all. But second of all, I know how much social media portrays maternity leave as being this really beautiful bonding experience and one that many women wish that they could hold on to forever. But I know that from conversations with you, Sarah, this isn't necessarily the case. So could you give us a peek into your maternity leave, including some of those hard parts? Yes. Well, I will say it is a beautiful bonding experience and it is also other things. Um, mm -hmm. So I am very grateful to have a six month paid parental leave. That's Bloomberg policy for any primary caregiver. And I feel like that should just be national policy. That's what everyone should have. And yet, and yet it is also, despite that amount of generosity and support, it is also a time in your life when it, it is isolating. You know, I have total FOMO about what my colleagues are talking about. <laughs> Anytime there's a big news story, I just want to be a fly on the wall at an editorial meeting. I miss that 8.30 call with really smart adults where they talk about the news of the day and how we're going to cover it. So I think it can be really lonely to be on leave. And it has given me maybe, maybe a tiny little peek into what it's like to be a stay-at-home mom, to be at home for such a long time with a partner who's gone back to work. And yeah, it's hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think I wasn't really fully prepared because there's so much information out there on being pregnant. It's like a week by week, you know, the baby's a strawberry, the baby's a mango. Like what fruit is the baby this week? Um, and then there's just not that much information on sort of the postpartum woman. There's a lot on the baby, but there's not that much on you. So a lot of the physical and mental and emotional changes that you're going through, you're sort of charting that territory for yourself. And it's super intense as well as sometimes isolating. And so I'm still in the middle of it. I'm still in the middle of it. And I'm still sort of figuring all out. And I sometimes miss that part of me that's like that super competent, professional, confident person that I am when I'm at work. Work is a place where I feel really happy and in control. And that version of Sarah is just dormant right now. So she'll be back in a couple more months. But for now, it's just this new version of myself I'm still getting to know. Sarah, thank you for sharing all that because I know... There are so many women listening who can't wait to get back to work or they left the maternity leave and they felt better at work, but were either too afraid to share it because of what others would think or it wasn't a popular opinion. So I'm just so glad that you brought all that up because Kat, Amy, and I, we all love to work as well. And we're so happy in our roles as moms who also can provide for our family and feel fulfilled in multiple titles. Like that's one of the big reasons we started this podcast is being fulfilled in all the titles that we wear and one of those is being working mothers. So Sarah, let's go into a topic that you talk about so well, and that's on questioning assumptions. So there are many women in this community who are at that point of burnout. They feel overworked. They're ready to make a change. 
but sometimes they don't know what that change actually is. So from your research, you've interviewed hundreds of people in the field. Let's walk through some of those assumptions that people think that they have to make. So for starters, one that hits me personally is the thought that in order to make my side hustle work, be more family-centered or feel less overwhelmed, I have to go part-time. So dig into that one a little bit more. Yeah, I have heard this one so much from different women looking to dial back. And it relates a little bit to what we talked about earlier with time-greedy jobs and the different ways that men and women respond to time pressure. But so let me just start by saying that as a caveat, part-time can be great. One of the other moms I'm friends with says the happiest mom she knows work part-time. So I just want to say I know it works for some people. But on the other hand, the reality is that it doesn't pay proportionately. So if you go from like 40 hours to 20 hours, you are going to be working 50%, but you might only be earning 30% as much as before. And people who work more than 40 hours earn disproportionately more. So it's one of those things that is not a linear correlation. It's not like you earn 20 bucks an hour. And then if you work more hours, it's just another 20 bucks. It's not like that. It's disproportionately accrues to people who work the most hours. So if you're cutting back to part-time, it might be more of a pay cut than you bargain for. The other thing that can happen, and that I've heard from lots of people I know who work part-time, is that your full-time colleagues can typically forget what days you're working or what hours you're working. And you'll constantly be in the position of reminding people, actually, you know, I'm home with my kids on days, or actually Wednesday afternoons off. And so what ends up happening is either you are sort of constantly in a position of holding that boundary, which can get very frustrating and hard. Or you give in and you end up working more hours than you're getting paid for. So you're working maybe 80% instead of 50%, but you're still only getting paid 30%. So I think that sort of struggle, I think is really important to go into with open eyes. And then there's some other issues. People tend to think of people who work part-time as less committed, even when that is not true. Pay and performance, they don't always correlate with effort or hours worked. So it's sort of a perception issue. You seem a little bit less committed, which can be really, really challenging when you're also trying to move forward in your career. So I think it's sort of fair to play the game. I wouldn't advocate lying, but I think it's fair to realize that there's a a sort of perception and a reality. And you can maybe quietly try without asking permission to dial back 1% or 5% and just see if anyone even notices. And if you're a really conscientious person, chances are you will still manage to get your work done while just quietly carving out some more time for yourself. Well, that 1% or the 5% that you mentioned, it could literally be instead of going to the bathroom and talking to a coworker for 20 minutes on the way, you just go to the bathroom and come back to your desk. And that would leave 20 more minutes to work on that side hustle or to leave early for a kid's soccer game or wherever that is. I just, I'm nodding my head over here with that answer because I went part-time nine years into my career. And I was so excited to go part-time because it would open up 50% more hours for me. But what I didn't realize is that when you mentioned the pay cut, my salary was exactly 50%, but I lost my benefits. So right there, that was bringing it down to the 30% that you mentioned. And then my colleagues not knowing when I worked, I would spend probably an hour a day reorganizing my calendar, sending emails, being like, I don't work on Fridays. I don't work on Wednesdays. And just making sure that people understood that, hey, you can't book that on that day because I'm not working. So there was just so much back and forth that I ended up working more hours than necessary because of just how confusing it was for the other people around me. So I'm just nodding my head over here on that one. 
Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where like, you have to be then in a position of doing all that extra work. So that is extra time. And it's also sort of constantly reminding people or putting it in their face that you are not available all the time. And our culture puts such a premium on people who are just available and have no boundaries. Mm-hmm. That's often the expectation of the quote unquote ideal worker is someone with no boundaries. We know that's not healthy. We know that's not realistic, but that doesn't mean it isn't what we think is supposed to be and what gets rewarded at work. So I'm glad you shared your experience because I, I do feel like it is often harder than people realize. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who are going to go part-time in order to make this work, that boundaries piece that Sarah brought up, you're the only one who can set those boundaries. And you're the only one who can keep those boundaries on your side. So just make sure that if you're going into it to set those and to actually do them, because I know that's one place that I made a mistake right away from the start. And then it just made it so much easier to keep on breaking that boundary. So just a really good reminder right there. And then another one, Sarah, that hits home, and I can hear hundreds of women in our community right now saying this, is that, hey, my corporate job is more secure. I've said it. Other women have said it. So Sarah, what are your thoughts on this one? This is a hard one, okay? I know that it feels very secure to have a corporate job with benefits. At the same time, I feel like all of us, we have seen enough layoffs in our lifetimes that they don't even make the news anymore. Corporate jobs are not secure. It's just unfortunately the way it is. Even if you're extremely good at your job, even if you are committed and friendly and people love to work with you, you know, a new CEO can come in and decide, oh, we're just going to eliminate that whole division, you know, and it's really hard. This is sort of a feature of modern capitalism. So I think that it's the kind of thing where your loyalty to a company is not always rewarded with loyalty coming back to you from the company. You might love your job. Your job will not love you back. So I think it's really important, even if you're in a big company, to think like an entrepreneur. That means thinking about things like selling your value to your colleagues, building transferable skills, building a personal brand. One of the people who talks a lot about personal brand who's really influenced my thinking is Dory Clark. And she talks about the importance of having multiple income streams. So your side hustle should have maybe a podcast empire and that should have merchandise and there should be advertisements. You know, there should be like multiple income streams supporting that. And I think if you think about a corporate job, that salary is just one income stream. So I think there is a sort of intuitive appeal that is very deeply ingrained that a corporate job is this very stable ladder to the top. But unfortunately, I think modern capitalism is just this is just not the way it works. A lot of people under the age of say 50 have seen our parents get laid off or we've been laid off ourselves. So I think it can be surprisingly risky to have all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that multiple income stream. We are going to have Pat Flynn on and he is the podcast host of Smart Passive Income and the king on this multiple income stream concept. So in a couple of weeks, we'll have him on if you are interested in just different ways that you can generate revenue within your business or as part of that side hustle. Okay, Sarah, so let's talk about a subject that we love, which is money and getting paid what we are worth. One of the assumptions that people make is if I transition to a job that I love, it's okay if I make less money. So what are your thoughts on this one? I would be very careful. Again, this is someone I think negotiating with themselves before they have negotiated with the Mm -hmm. world. 
sometimes we do need to take a step back in order to slingshot our careers forward. But I think we will do ourselves a disservice if we assume that we have to make less money or that making less money is okay as long as we're super happy. It's really important to me that women get paid. And I I feel like I'm being your very depressing podcast guest right now. (laughs) You know, things happen. Partners die. Family members get sick. Divorce happens. No one thinks these things will happen to them. And then it does. And I think financial independence is so important for long-term security. Having a sort of strong finances, I think helps make marriage and life just more secure and enjoyable. So if someone is really sure that they're going to have to take a salary hit, I would recommend maybe trying to live on that new lower salary or amount that you're paying yourself as an entrepreneur, live on that before you quit your main job. If it's 50% as much, Try living on that. That'll sort of do two things. One, it'll give you a real sense of what it's like to live on much less money, but also it will help you build up your savings so that if you do decide to make the leap, you do have a little bit more of a cushion. So I think that there are times when you have to take a pay cut, but I wouldn't assume that that is necessary. A lot of people find that when they switch jobs, they actually are making more because they're they're moving on, they're moving up. Maybe their job that has burned them out so much that they're leaving is underpaying them. So I wouldn't make that assumption. If you do think you'll have to, I'd give it a test run first. Yeah, and that money piece is a big reason that marriages fail and that businesses fail. So if we want to thrive in both of them, being secure financially, that's going to be a really important piece to consider in all of this. And then what about the people who think that they're too old to start fresh? So we have a lot of mothers who are listening that they wish they may have started all these big ideas before kids came into their lives. And they might be wondering, hey, has this ship sailed? Can I still go on this entrepreneurial journey? So what do you have to say to these women? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about this because I think there's this stereotype of you know an entrepreneur as like a 20-year-old Stanford dropout man. Mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But most entrepreneurs do start later in life. And statistically speaking, they are actually more likely to succeed. So if you think about it, it makes sense because older people have bigger network, they have more experience, they've had more time to develop skills and business ideas. They have a, a sort of more nuanced relationship with risk. So there's lots of reasons that older entrepreneurs have the capacity to be more successful. And I think that that idea of who gets to be an entrepreneur, that myth is so damaging. You know, the reality is, for example, Black women start companies at a disproportionately much higher rate compared to other demographic groups, even though they get only a tiny fraction of the funding that white men get. So that's just an area where the idea that we have in our head of this 20-year-old male Stanford dropout is just not lining up with reality. So my friend, Whitney Johnson, who's the author of the book, Disrupt Yourself, she actually started a 40 over 40 list to counterbalance all those 30 (laughs) under 30 entrepreneur lists. And I just love that because like there are actually tons of women out there doing really cool stuff. They just don't get the sort of magazine covers that you see sometimes on like Forbes or Fortune. So the reality is that older entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who don't look like the stereotype do very, very well. Mm, I love that. I love that list too, 40 over 40. And I also feel that just in my 30s compared to my 20s, I know myself so much better. And I definitely know my values so much better. And having both of those just be in line now, it's just going to propel us forward. That can be the catalyst that actually makes the change instead of trying to do all the things as a 20-year-old, but not really knowing the direction that you're going. So many women in our audience are also just getting started on their entrepreneurial journey. And Sarah, since this was one of the main topics that you cover in your research and your writing, what are a few pieces of advice that you could give the women 
maybe she just needs a little bit of motivation to keep going. What do you have to say to her? Yeah. Um, so I think one thing I wanted to mention about this is, you know, in my own life, my own career, I've often thought of some words of wisdom that were passed down to me by one of the authors I used to edit at Harvard, Rosabeth Moss Cantor. She told me change is messiest in the middle. And she was talking about corporate change efforts, but I think it applies to career changes or life changes too. So if things feel messy, that might just mean that you're getting to like the middle, you know, and you just push through and you'll get to the other side. So that's one thing I keep in mind. Change is messiest in the middle. One of the other great things about being your own boss is that you get to decide what success looks like. One of the things I realized when I was reading a lot of research on entrepreneurship is that researchers often have a very limited view of what success is. It's either selling the company or going public. So if you hear about companies that quote unquote fail, well, it might just mean that someone decided to close it down after doing it successfully for 10 years, they decided to move on. That does not sound like failure to me. So you might decide to run your business for some period of time and then decide to move on. That doesn't mean that you have failed. That means that it has served its purpose and you are now entering a new phase of life. So that's something I think is very freeing, realizing that you're in charge of deciding what success looks like. And then I guess, you know, the other thing I would just mention is I think I see so many people putting pressure on themselves to feel really passionate about what they do, but no job is amazing 100% of the time. And actually a little bit of emotional distance from our work can be really healthy. We don't want to identify too strongly with what we do. I think it's more than enough to do work that you feel like is meaningful and that pays you reasonably well and that you enjoy doing. That's more than enough. So I think that if you're sort of someone who's thinking, oh, I like this hustle, but maybe it's not my life's passion, that's okay. That's okay. You can just sort of try it out, you know, iterate towards something better and just see it as part of a larger portfolio of who you are. It doesn't need to define who you are. One of the people I enjoyed most interviewing was trying to tell me, really, instead of starting a company, Sarah, you should just buy a small business. There's very, you know, many boring small businesses that are very lucrative. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, give me an example. And he's like, porta potties, you know, (laughs) people all gotta go. And he's like, how would you feel if you were the porta potty queen of greater Boston? And I was like, you know, actually, if I were making a million dollars a year, like just running a porta potty business, I don't think I would care that I was in the poop business. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways to make a living and there's all kinds of priorities people have at different points in their lives. So I think just give yourself a little bit of grace if that's something you're struggling with. Well, and just try it on for size. I mean, maybe you want to be the porcelain goddess of Boston, or maybe you just want to try this other side hustle, but just giving it its time, figuring out if that identity works for you. That's really good information right there. So Sarah, this has been such an honor. And where can our audience connect with you and just learn more from you if they're interested? Thank you for asking. Uh, so my columns at Bloomberg Opinion are still there, even though I am on leave. And that includes a couple of things that published that I know I got done before I was on leave. So like a Q&A with Emily Oster, I know you guys talked to for the Herself podcast that published, we recorded that, you know, before my leave and has published since. So there might still be some stuff there that's relatively recent. I'm also at SK Green on Twitter and at Sarah Green Carmichael on Instagram. 
Well, Sarah, thank you again so much for this information today. There are pieces that any woman listening is able to pull from, whether it's combating some of those assumptions that we've been told and that we believe and trying something else on for size or stopping negotiating with ourselves and making the decisions internally so that the rest of the world can really get the full piece of you. And as Sarah knows with HBR's podcast, which gets over a million and a half downloads every episode... Having a rating and having a review from our listeners, it means everything. So if you could just take a couple minutes, head into the app that you listen to on podcasts, hit the stars that you think that we're worth and leave a little review. We do read every single one of them and we love hearing from our community. So thank you again for doing that. And Sarah, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. 